uh, by it. Lord, your, your word itself promises that you never send your word out to return back to you empty, Lord God, but you send it out to accomplish the purpose that you have set for it. And so, Lord, we are trusting in that reality today and asking you to speak to us through this this uh, book from short book of Obadiah today. Lord, we thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for every every word of your word. Lord, I, I just uh, pray for myself, Lord, as always, that you would... Um, God, just overshadow all of my weaknesses that I acknowledge, all of my uh, tendencies towards sin and, and often hypocrisy, Lord, and, and cause me to be useful in your hands, Lord. I pray that you would bless the the proclamation of your word to the uh, to the hearts of everyone who is hearing and that you would transform us all, that nobody would walk out of this building like we came in. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Obadiah, we're here uh, continuing our uh, series in the Minor Prophets. Uh, We have done uh, Hosea, Joel, and Amos now. We're in the fourth of 12 uh, Minor Prophets that we're looking at. We're going to, as we've told you, skip over Jonah because we did a series uh, last year, a more in-depth series on Jonah that you can listen to online. Um, But uh, Obadiah is an interesting book. It's the shortest of the very short books in the Minor Prophets. Um, The Minor Prophets, all of the books, average about 6.3 chapters. I'm really getting into this math about numbers in the Minor Prophets, but they average about 6.3 chapters. But Obadiah has only one, only one chapter. It's a little book, but I want you to know it speaks with a big voice. It, It has a lot to say to us today. Obadiah is a book about redemption. It's a book about hope for all of God's people. Now, we don't know for certain when the book of Obadiah was written. Unlike other minor prophets, um, Obadiah tells us absolutely nothing about his hometown. He doesn't tell us anything about his family. He doesn't tell us what kings were reigning in Israel or Judah when he wrote this book. Um, We know very little about the time of his vision. Um, In fact, most scholars... uh, think that the book was written uh, right after the the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, you'll recall the story, Babylon conquered uh, it, uh, Judah and Jerusalem, their capital, and all of the exiles to live in Babylon and just utterly destroyed them. But it was before Edom, and we're going to talk a lot about Edom today, uh, fell to Babylon as well in a subsequent campaign in 553 uh, BC. Now, the context of the book would see, although there are people that think it was written at a different time, the context of this book, which you'll see, would heavily favor this dating that I described to you. As for Obadiah personally, we know absolutely nothing. There's nothing else in the scriptures about Obadiah. His name was very common in ancient Israel. In fact, 12 people mentioned in the Old Testament are named Obadiah. Um, But there's little to absolutely no likelihood that uh, any of the other Obadiahs mentioned in scripture could be the author of this book for for various and sundry reasons. Um, But this book is important because even though with what we don't know, this is what we do know. This book is important because of a four-word phrase that you find in verse 18. And that four-word phrase is this, the Lord has spoken. 
And so what I'm telling you is that the power of a little book like Obadiah doesn't depend on the fame or the prominence of the prophet who is delivering the message, but it depends entirely on the glory and the authority of the one for whom he speaks. That's why Obadiah matters, because the Lord has spoken. And this book is a message written mostly not to the people of God. This is really interesting about Obadiah. Obadiah is written entirely to God's enemies. It's it directly written to, it was, it was God's letter of accusation, warning, and judgment to his enemies. He's telling them that their injustice and their cruelty has not escaped his notice. He is watching. And he's telling them furthermore that a day of reckoning is approaching quickly. He's telling them that his people the ones that he has a covenant with will one day be redeemed and vindicated. And that's why this little bitty book offers us so much hope. So if you look at verse 1, if you still have your Bibles open to Obadiah, it says this, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. The message of Obadiah concerns this little nation to the southeast of Judah named Edom. Now, Edom were, were a people who were uh, descended from Esau. You may remember the story of Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, of course, was the father of 12 sons from whom sprang the 12 tribes of Israel. And Esau and Jacob, this is what you need to understand. We're now hundreds of years past that initial event. And Esau and, and Jacob were bitter rivals through the whole existence that they that they shared together both as individuals and as nations they were bitter bitter rivals in fact genesis 25 the first time we ever hear about jacob and esau it tells us that as twins they struggled in their mother's womb now my wife had twins and i know how uncomfortable um, that can be but if you have a wwe match going on inside your womb that can add much more to the discomfort of having twins when Jacob was born, interestingly enough, Esau was born first, Jacob was born second. The Bible tells us that he was clutching his brother's heel. And that was symbolic of the way that they would live the rest of their lives. This clutching of Esau's heel. Jacob is famous. Now, now but before I say another word, let me just tell you, neither of these guys are role models. Don't go home and say, I want to be like Jacob or I want to be like Esau. Don't do it. Promise me. Raise your hand and promise me you won't do that. Because Jacob is famous for being a schemer, a liar, a deceiver. And Esau is famous for being a fool. Esau uh, one day came in from the field. They've grown up now and he is famished. He's been, he'd been out there in the hot sun. He's famished. He's starving to death. And his brother Jacob, the schemer, sold him a bowl of red stew in exchange for his right of, his, of inheritance as the firstborn. Later, Jacob wasn't done. He deceived their elderly father so that he could steal the paternal blessing, which was a big deal. It was a big deal in ancient Israel. And he wanted to steal the paternal blessing that belonged to, to Esau. And he was successful in that. 
Now, Edom, we've been talking about Esau and Edom. Edom is actually another name for Esau. The nickname means red, and it points back to that infamous incident with the, with the, uh, red bowl, the, the bowl of red stew. But historically, however, it could also point to Edom's violent and bloody history. They were a constant nuisance to Israel throughout all of their history. Israel, Edom was always found at odds with the people of God. Let me give you some examples. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses, they're they're near the tail end of their journey, and Moses wanted to lead the Israelites northward into the promised land through Edom. And and so he sent a request. He said, can we do this? We won't take anything that belongs for you. If we we, uh, eat any food of your land, we'll pay it back. He's really making a plea. But the king refused them passage and made threats, even though they were cousins. So they had to take the long way around through the desert. 400 years later, during Saul's reign, Saul was the first king of Israel, Israel fought against Edom. And during Jehoshaphat's reign, Edom attacked Judah. They were later turned back, thank goodness. But later on, um, after they had become like servants of Judah, Edom rebelled and they freed themselves from Judah's rule. Now, what did they do when they did that? After that, they became vassals of Assyria. If you know the story, Assyria were were the arch enemies of Israel. In fact, that when this kingdom split, you had Israel in the north, Judah in the south. It was Assyria that, that carried off Israel. So there was, there was this enmity that existed forever. So we, we fast forward all the way to 586 BC. God has judged Judah for idolatry, He's judged them for their, uh, you know, the, their wickedness and their not, their unfaithfulness to the covenant. And, and so they, Jerusalem falls, all the people are taken into exile, and guess what? Edom throws a party. They rejoice, they gloat, they're excited that their enemies are gone. And this is what the, and that was a real sticking point to the prophets and writers of that time. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 137.7. It says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. The Edomites were actually celebrating the destruction of Jerusalem and, and wanting more and more and more. The greatest injustice, however and this is referred to a lot in Obadiah, committed by Edom against God's people was that when they were, ex- uh, when they were conquered and when they were sent into exile, the Edomites would stand guard and, and capture any escaping Jewish fugitives and turn them back over to the Babylonians instead of being a place of refuge for them to, to survive uh, this Holocaust that was happening to them. And God, looking at this, declares it to be unjust in Obadiah. 11. Look at this. He says, on the day, on that day, you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, his being Jacob's, uh, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem. And you, God talking to Edom, were like one of them. Obadiah 14, just a few verses down. Do not stand at the the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So despite their kinship, they they came from the same mama and daddy. Despite their kinship, the relationship between Israel and Edom remained contentious. 
And here's some good news. God did not remain neutral in this conflict. See, what God always does he, is he stayed true to his covenant promise. Remember, he'd made some, some promises to uh, Abraham that, that he would bless the whole world through Abraham. And there are many nations, if you flip through the pages of your Bible, there are many nations listed as enemies of God in the Scripture. You've heard of most of these, the Philistines, the Amalekites, Moab, etc. But Edom stands out as an enemy of the Lord. Malachi 1, uh, uh, chapter 1 points this out better than any other place in Scripture. Listen to the strength of these words. Malachi 1, verse 2. I have loved you. Now, God is talking to his people, to Israel, to Jacob. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord's replied? Uh, it says, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... I have hated. Now, some of you are uncomfortable that's in the scripture, but it's right there. I've loved Jacob. I've hated Esau. I have laid waste his hill country. The, the, the area of, of Esau, of Eden, Edom, was mountainous. And, and, and he says, I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So Obadiah teaches us three important things about the judgments of God that helps us. How does it help us? It helps us to be patient in trial. It helps us to be bold in our gospel proclamation. It helps us to be hopeful even in the midst of suffering. So the first one is that Obadiah teaches us that the, the, the judgments of God, when God pours out judgment, when God pours out wrath, that it's retributive. In other words, it's well-deserved. That, that no one is judged by God who doesn't deserve to be judged by God. Amen? God doesn't pick on anyone. Amen? He judges people for their sinfulness. Not a single nation has ever been judged by God unfairly. All of the nations of the Old Testament who mocked his holiness, who defied his authority, who mistreated his people were judged. There were no exceptions to that rule. And it was true of Edom as well. God says in verse 3, talking about the reasons he is judging them. In verse 3 he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Skipping down to verse 10, their violence is mentioned. And their indifference is the subject of verses 11 through 14. And Obadiah 15 says this, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. We are talking about retribution. God is paying them back for what they deserve. Now, what is true for nations is now true for individuals. And what I want you to know is we, we take the doctrine of, of eternal judgment, the doctrine of hell, very seriously here. And anyone, we want you to know, who is cast into the lake of fire in the end deserves to be there. They've been commanded in this life by God to repent and to put their trust in Christ. And yet they willingly pursue only their, their self-interests. 
And this is the warning. You know, we can talk about Old Testament, Iron Age cultures that are no longer in existence. But this is the warning that God has for us today. It's right there in your Bible. The New Testament, not the Old. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So what is he doing there? What's the writer doing? He's pointing back to the Old Covenant. And he said, God issued a law through Moses. And anyone who who, uh, defied that law, who disobeyed that law, was was put to death on on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now listen to what he says, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. What he's saying there is, is when there was a law and it was, it was a covenant of obey this and be blessed. Now grace is wide open. The message of grace in the gospel, the freely believe and be forgiven and be accepted. That message is going out. And yet still some people trample that message. And what God is saying that much worse punishment than were, the, much worse punishments rather than were doled out at, in the old covenant are deserved by those who trample the grace of Jesus freely offered. Listen to verse 30. For we know, who, we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. There it is again, retribution. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is that not the most understatement message of Scripture? Listen to me. If you're here and you have not done what the Lord commands, Acts 17, it says the Lord commands people everywhere to repent. If you have not repented of your sin and put your trust in Christ, this is a warning to you that a day is coming that will not be pleasant. And I'm encouraging you, I'm pleading with you to put your trust in Jesus. Moving on, next we see that not only is God's justice deserved, but God's justice is total. He promises in this passage in Obadiah to leave nothing undone. I've said before to you that all scales in the end will be balanced. All debts will be paid in full. And in verses 3 and 4, God compares Edom to an eagle who feels safe in, up in their nest, high on the side of a cliff. And he, he says, they say in their heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Nothing can touch me. Look at where I live. Look at, look at my superiority. Nothing can touch me. And this is God's answer to that arrogant boast. Though you soar aloft like an, the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. There is nowhere, listen to me, there is nowhere the Lord can't reach. You are not safe in your net of wealth. You are not safe in your net of reputation. You are not safe in your net of success. You are not safe in your, in your net of atheism or worldly religion. You are not safe. The Lord promises unless you repent, He will bring you down. There's nowhere God can't reach. There's no safe refuge to escape his watching eye. You may think you're flying, but God can cause you to crash to the ground. 
And God points out the ruin and devastation awaiting Edom. And he says it will be complete. There is no escaping what's coming. No remnant will remain to Edom. Listen to verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If gape gatherers came to you, would they not leave the gleaning? Uh, would they not leave the gleanings? But listen to uh, verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to the to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. What was true for Edom is true for the present age. On that day when the great judge bangs his gavel, there will be no place to hide. And worse yet, there will be no appeal process. Second Peter 3, 7 says the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God's justice will be total. That fire will destroy all ungodliness once and for all. There will not be even a trace of anything that harms, offends, or defiles God's people or his creation. And nothing and no one will subvert God, his word, his beauty, or his holiness in that day. Obadiah 16 emphasizes this total, this idea of total destruction of that which is ungodly. He says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, he's picturing people actually after, after Israel is wiped out coming to the mountain of the Lord and just getting stone cold drunk and they're partying that Jerusalem has finally been destroyed. He says, for as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. And he's not talking about wine. He's talking about wrath. They will drink and swallow and they shall be as though they never had been. God will bring about total annihilation of evil. You can take that to the bank. I promise you the day is coming that God is going to wipe out evil entirely. So that's two purposes. Retribution and total destruction. But the last great purpose of God's judgment is the vindication of his people. Though there would not be even a remnant left to Edom, the Bible tells us that the people of God would survive. Verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble or hay or straw. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor left for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. God says that Jerusalem will have survivors, that they will live in holiness, and that they will be blessed, possessing their own possessions. They would no longer be slaves of anyone. They won't be exiles of anyone. They would once again be a people without Edom to afflict or persecute or betray or make war against them. The Lord says that they themselves, the people of God, will be a fire and Edom would be like straw. No one from Edom would survive. But back in verse 15, I want you to watch this. God says that the day of the Lord will come on all the nations. So he expands it beyond Edom. 
All of the enemies of, of his people are going to be dealt with just as Edom was. God is declaring a day when only two classes of people will remain. Only two. Those who defy God and are destroyed in an outpouring of wrath and those who have a covenant with God and are established and delivered. And my question to you is, which class of those people are you in right now? And slow down for a second where you're sitting and think about what you're hearing. Think about this. So Judah who consisted of what remained of the 12 tribes of Israel. They had been conquered by the Babylonians. They had been sent into exile far away from their home. Their temple was destroyed. They had no king. All their religious and political institutions were in shambles. And it was God who decreed this judgment upon them because of their idolatry and their unfaithfulness. They were paying a price for, uh, because they forsook their faithful God. Watch this. It's the faithfulness of God that kept them from being completely wiped out like Edom. Why did he do that? Why did God do that? Because he remembered. He remembered the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And he promised that he would make them into a great nation. And that that through him, he would bless the world. And so while Edom mocks, God is protecting and rebuilding Judah. He's preparing Judah for the final step in the fulfillment of his promise. Now there is no mention of of a messianic individual. There's no Messiah in Obadiah. But we do see hints of his kingdom in the final verses. Let's read them again. Those of the, this is verse 19, I'm beginning, we'll read the last three verses. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now, I'm not going to try to sort out all those place names. Probably some of you, most of you, including myself when I first read this, had no idea what that was talking about. It's a lot of different place names. I'm not going to try to sort them out, but I want you to notice three things about that list we just got. That God's people will possess this. God's people will possess that. And uh, and this is what I want you to notice. Three things. First, the repeated use of the word possess. God says that the people that Edom thought were totally gone, completely wiped out, brought to an end, those people that they are shamelessly gloating over will one day return and they will own the whole place. Second, Notice what it is that they'll possess. Even if you only have the most basic understanding of Scripture, look back at those names, you can probably recognize the name of some of Israel's most nefarious enemies in the text. You see in that list Mount Esau, which represents Edom. You see the Philistines. You see Samaria, which was the breakaway kingdom of Israel. You see the Canaanites. So God is disciplining His people for 70 years in Babylon, but he will turn over the deed of their enemies' houses to them in the end. What a promise is that? What a powerful promise. 
And last, this is the third thing I want you to notice, God is not just saying that his people will return to what they had, but it says that they are going to expand. Now again, you may not know a lot about those nations that are listed, but I want you to see something about them. The nations that are listed represent far past the borders of Judah to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west, that they represent that. So what God is saying is that they are going to expand past their present borders to, to uh, encompass a lot more. And the payoff is the last verse of the book, Obadiah 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So saviors or deliverers will rise to bring peace, harmony, and stability to the land. And even in all the transfer of the land, the last promise says, the kingdom shall be the Lord. So when the deed gets handed over, the people of God are going to hand it right over to the Lord and say, this is, this is the Lord's world now. Now, I want you to, hopefully you can see that those promises have tremendous implications for the kingdom of God coming at the end. Tremendous implications. That God is saying that one day he is going to vindicate all his people. He's going to punish all evil. And he is going to make his people the possessors of something that goes far beyond the borders of what they previously had. He's going to do that. That's the promise. And we know now through the the writings of the New Testament, the teachings of Scripture, that he's talking about the whole world. Yeah, we're going to expand north, south, east, and west until the, the the glory of the Lord, the Bible says, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the kingdom, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So God is going to vindicate his people. He's going to cause them to possess the gates of their enemies. But it's not so he can replace one tyrant, those bad guys from Edom, with another tyrant, my selfish, proud self. The kingdom shall be the Lord's and his people shall reign with him. So what's the 21st century point of all this? I said that's the most important question we can ask about the minor prophets. What's the 21st century point of all this? Well, we find it in Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And here's the good part. And he shall reign forever and ever. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Paul says that all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. All of us. There's no exception. Jesus said that if they hate us, to remember that they hated him before they even thought about us. But the promise of Scripture, the promise of Obadiah, is that no matter what our enemies in this life do to us, is that God has not and will not forget us. That's the promise. He will not leave us, he said to his disciples, as orphans. A day is coming when all of his people will be vindicated. All the scales will balance and all the debts will be paid and no one is getting away with anything. Romans chapter 12 verse 18, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
God is not calling us to be troublemakers. Amen? Amen? He scared me there for a minute. And I want you to go burn down something. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But listen, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Persecution from God's enemies is a constant reality for anyone who is really following Christ. Oftentimes we worry about being persecuted, but we should worry more if we're not experiencing any kind of persecution. Because if, if that's the case, if you're not experiencing any kind of persecution, it's probably not that you're fortunate. What it probably is, is that you're not much of a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Oh, it sounds kind of abrupt and harsh, but you should ask yourself that. God, why is... This life's so easy for me. Because God said, all who want to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. So we have to be like God. The Bible says that he's not willing that any should perish and we should not delight in the destruction of any. But we should do everything we can to live at peace. There should be nothing offensive about us except, and this is a big except, the gospel that we proclaim. Because the gospel we proclaim is plenty offensive enough. But we must rest assured that our Father in heaven is always watching over his children. The Bible says that we are the apple of his eye and that no one can raise a finger against us to separate us from the reality of his constant presence right now and his fiery vindication of us when he judges the world in righteousness and truth. So God vindicated Judah after they were judged with 70 years of exile. And similarly, according to 1 Peter 2.11, we're now living as exiles ourselves. Just like Judah, our deliverance and vindication will only come when our exile years are done. And I got to tell you something, your exile years are almost done. We mustn't live for this present reality. Every book in the New Testament, every single one of them, tells us to be constantly watching and waiting for the reality to come. That time when we are out of exile and we are fully vindicated. And looking for the coming world, which we obtain either at death or at the return of Christ, was a Christian norm. It was a, it was a normal thing for Christians to do, to look for the other world um, for two millennia. But as the church has become more worldly and more consumeristic, we've become more concerned with maximizing success and comfort and reputation down here. But I am calling you this morning to raise your eyes, church. Raise your eyes as you consider the great vindication that the Lord will provide for his people. Raise your eyes. Colossians 3, 2. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. The great day of vindication is drawing near for all the true saints of the Lord. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to receive communion. So I don't know how to direct you in your own praying except to say, um, you need to ask yourself a couple of questions. Uh, Let me restate that. You need to ask the Lord a couple of questions. The first question is, of those two classes of people, which 
side am I on? And, and let me tell you something. If your first impulse when you ask the Lord that question is to make some excuses, then it's probably not a great sign. But if you say, search me, know me, try my heart, Lord, see if there's any grievous way in me, then that's the way you ask that question. Say, Lord, which side am I on? Am I those who will, uh, among that group of people who are uh, going to be uh, judged because of my, my constant resistance, rebellion uh, to your call to repent? Or am I the one that will be vindicated by you? No matter what I'm suffering now, I will be vindicated by you. And just ask the Lord that question. In fact, I'm going to give you a few seconds to bow your heads, close your eyes, ask the Lord, and let him do a work in you. If you don't come up with the answer that you want, it's okay. We're going we're gonna to tell you how to fix that. If your heart is immediately filled with questions and doubt and fear about the future, if you are consumed with a list of reasons why you should be judged and, and you don't know what, it, uh, and, and you're fearful of what's awaiting you, let me tell you something. The grace of the Lord, as long as there's breath in your lungs and blood in your heart, the, the, the grace of the Lord is wide open for you. If you will just right there where you are, just confess to the Lord that you acknowledge that you are a sinner and there's not a single thing you can do about it yourself. And throw yourself on His grace and say, Lord, I trust you to make me new. If you'll do that, He will receive you and He will begin to transform you. And I always ask this, but if you're here and you make a decision like that, I'm not going to out you, I'm not going to expose you, I'm not going to shine a spotlight on you, but I want to know so I can help you. If, you, if you're doing that right now, will you just come talk to me after the service? We can, we can talk discreetly and we'll, we'll tell you what you can do to be successful in your decision to follow Jesus. For the rest of you, just ask the Lord, Lord, how can I remain faithful? How can I remain faithful even under trial? How can I remain faithful even under persecution? And as I said, if you're here and you think, well... My life's pretty easy. I'm not seeing any kind of resistance, any kind of persecution. I'm not talking about being beaten. I'm not talking about any of those things. None of us are experiencing that right now. But I'm talking about just people who are resisting you because you're making a stand for the gospel. Ask the Lord right where you're at. Have the same guts that the other people did and ask the Lord, why is that, Lord? Do I represent anything that is costly or risky for the kingdom of God? Ask Him. Because the Lord this morning is here to recruit soldiers for the cause of the kingdom of God. And we're not soldiers with weapons of warfare. We're soldiers with weapons of grace. And so I just want you to ask the Lord what he has for you this morning. And similarly, if he speaks to you about some things he wants you to do, then come talk to us and we will help you to get in the right place to serve the Lord. Let's take a second and do that. God is calling you deeper. 
deeper where you can't touch the bottom, where you have to rely on him to hold you up. He's calling you deeper. I believe some of you may be here who are being challenged in ways you've never been challenged before. You may be nervous and you may be frightened, but I'm telling you, take the Lord's hand and he will not let you out of his sight. And he promises that he will defend and vindicate you when the day arrives. Lean into him. All right, for those of you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to ask you to come now and um, uh, take, we're going to take communion together, take the elements from the tables and then take them back to your seats. And, that we, and, and when you get back there, we'll take communion together. Earlier, Pastor David, David led us in the um, Apostles' Creed, which is something that believers have done, as he said, through the, since the third century, and it unites us um, as believers and with all of our unique theological differences and things like that, um, those are the things that we can all agree on. Well, this sacrament was given to us by the Lord himself even three three centuries earlier than that. And it serves the same purpose. It says that because of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the spilled blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united into one body doesn't matter where we live or what language we speak, we are united as one body. And so as that becomes a theme of this morning, I just want you to think about that. Think about believers, uh, you know, across the ocean. Think about believers in persecuted countries like Nigeria and North Korea. Think about uh, people in, in places where they don't have the wealth that we have, like Mexico and Guatemala and, and throughout the African continent. Think about those people and think about um, with all the advantages that we have and all the, the disadvantages they may have, that we are still brothers and sisters in, in believing in one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Amen. So let's, let's uh, read Paul's words here. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these reminders, these tangible reminders of your death for us, your cleansing for us by your, uh, of us by your blood. We thank you that uh, in you we are new creations, that we have been born again to a new and living hope, Lord. We thank you that you are... Uh, the Lord of all, and that uh, we are in covenant with you in a new covenant sealed by your blood. And we thank you 
uh, that you will never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, one last thing. If you'll place your hands in a, in a receiving position, I want to read to you from the book of Lamentations. Has anybody ever read a benediction over you from Lamentations? But I want to read to you from a Lamentations uh, about what we talked about today. Perfect scripture for this morning. And this is for you, people of God. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion, and he will not prolong your exile. But he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.